Thanks for tuning in to the Claim the Throne Blodgecast. Coming on you with an exciting tool each week. Blah, 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 fanbase. I'm your host, Ashley Large, for ClaimTheThrone.com. Welcome back to the Claim the Throne Blodgecast. I'm your solo host once again, Ash. And believe me, guys, I'm missing Cabra on this thing as much as you. He's still in America, as listeners would be aware from the last few episodes that he was over there for Jim's wedding, as was I. A bit of a whirlwind trip for me to go catch up with one of my best friends and bass player of Claim of Throne, Jim Parker, for his lovely wedding. Uh, left on the 23rd of September from Perth at 10.35pm. Did some ridiculous plane trips and stopovers, so flew to Brisbane, pretty quick trip to Brisbane and had a 15-hour layover there. That was absolutely brutal, but not too bad, actually. Hung around, watched some, um, you know, music tuition videos on my phone in the airport, listened to some tunes, some podcasts, tried to get some sleep, had some pretty good Japanese there. Brisbane Airport's not too bad. Um, And then, yeah, jumped on a flight from Brisbane to LA, which took about a solid 13 hours, I'd say. It was pretty hectic, but I tried my best. I'm not the best at sleeping on planes, but I tried my damnedest to sleep as much as humanly possible on there. I reckon I scored between eight and 10 hours just in and out the whole time. But yeah, it was made the trip go really quick. I get a bit sort of, I don't know, a bit of cabin fever on the long flight. So that helped. Usually what happens is I sleep for the first four hours, wake up and they tell me that there's, you know, eight to 10 hours left and I go, oh geez, I'm not going to handle this. Anyway, so landed in Vegas, oh sorry, in LA, then had a two or three hour stopover. Uh, Then we flew to Vegas, landed there at 10.30ish PM on Sunday night, American time. Uh, checked into a hotel, which was off the strip, off the Las Vegas strip a little bit. And yeah, it was very cheap on the net, looked very cool, great. It was the Circus Circus, you may know from some movies about Vegas. And yeah, immediately made a decision that we're going to rebook our hotels. We'd got that hotel on Qantas points and had to pay cash fee, a resort fee, which by the way, that's a little tip for you. All Vegas casinos have this resort fee that they hock you. I've noticed a lot of people online say, oh, this hotel sucks because they charge me a hidden fee at the end of my stay. That actually applies to all hotels. So do check into that when you're booking Vegas stuff, especially online. And especially like we did with points, which, you know, um, I think it actually did tell us when we were booking the in our sort of checkout for that. Some make you pay it up front and some make you pay or check in or check out. So yeah, again, be aware. It's probably about 35 to 50 bucks a day Australian. I guess that also depends on the hotel or resort. Anyway, so we lost, you know, well lost. We probably paid 120 for resort fee just for the one night basically. Uh, so still had a room there but decided to bugger off and went onto the Vegas Strip for the next three nights and that was actually in the same hotel Jim was getting married in which worked out really well because I walked from Circus Circus the next morning at something like 8am 
um, which was a bit of a struggle after like two and a half, three solid days of or solid days worth of flight and layover time. And yeah, it was just too far. So I figured in terms of getting taxis there and back, uh, the costing and everything, you know what, if we got some more points left over, let's use it on a fresh hotel, pay the resort fee. So yeah, our Vegas accommodation for four nights for both hotels was about 300 bucks and some Qantas points. So worked out pretty good and it was great to just be done partying for a day and just go just walk five minutes straight up to a room it was awesome so that worked out really well uh that does i mean and this applies to bands by the way so i don't think it's just for me telling a story uh another thing that did help us out um and this hasn't been too prevalent for us as a touring band just yet uh in australia it has but yeah not quite abroad until now which was actually uber and lyft don't know if we have Lyft in Australia, but they have Lyft in America. Very similar to Uber, slightly cheaper. And the idea of it is, is that you can do it like Uber, just normal, or you can do this rideshare version. So let's say you're coming in at the airport, you're heading to the Vegas Strip and there's four other people going to the Vegas Strip. You can jump in a rideshare and it costs you a smaller chunk of what that ride would normally cost. But for bands, yeah, I think it's... um handy to just have that option available rather than your regular taxi cabs Uh, the reason why i liked it is because if the airport you're in has wi-fi that does extend slightly outside the bounds of the airport you can yeah order your uber as you would in australia go to the pickup zone which by the way to a tip is called a rideshare location it's not in the taxi rank and it's not in the pickup zone like it is in perth anyway in australia they obviously have so much Uber going on there and Lyft that, yeah, they've got a designated spot. And that's almost everywhere we went. So all the casinos and resorts had a rideshare location. And what's cool about that is if your Wi-Fi is restricted, you can set your pickup zone at the rideshare area and then walk out there. You've got no Wi-Fi, but, you know, I would take a screen cap of the number plate, the description of the car and the guy's name. Um, And I also had international roaming activated. Now, I don't use that. I turn my data off, but I activate that so I can at least receive calls and and text. So receiving a text is free, sending it costs money. So if your Uber sends you a text, which they do, such and such is arriving at this location, you'll get your text and it's free. You just read it, you look out for them and you, you jump in the car. Some of them, especially because you might be a bit ambiguous as to where you set your pickup location, will call ahead and say, where are you? Are you at the rideshare location? That's where I'm going to be. So meet me there. And yeah, it does. I think it's like 75 cents a minute, but you can get through one of those calls in about a minute. So I think that's worthwhile to have activated uh, just don't go, if you're getting calls from Australia, don't go answering them because, yeah, it'll cost you a shitload of money um, as will texting. But with things like uh, Viber or WhatsApp, and if you're an iPhone user, you can use iMessage for free over Wi-Fi. So you can do that sort of stuff as well. Anyway, that's bloody helpful as a band considering in the old days uh, we didn't have access to this sort of stuff even though we had smartphones. So that is pretty good. Another tip on my walk from the Circus Circus into Las Vegas Strip to meet up for Jim's Bucks Day. 
I I think I've mentioned this on the podge before, but I've got the Google Maps app. As soon as I land in a new country and I'm in a hotel, I open it up. I set an area with the constraints of where I know I'm going to generally be. So usually the, you know, city limits or something like that. And yeah, in this case, I set it from the Circus Circus all the way through to where the wedding was going to be at very least. And I set it as an offline area. Uh, I also try, I don't know if this actually works like this, but I try and do some searching around of like things I might need. So I'll look for a Starbucks for a coffee. I'll look for a, I don't know, a place to buy some booze or maybe some groceries. Uh, if, you know, if, I, if I'm staying somewhere for a while or I might need some cheap eats and general things like that, just landmarks and stuff. And I'm hope, I think that when you search that and then set an offline area, that those things become searchable. Um, and I also zoom in and zoom out a lot around the map. So it's kind of like in my phone's data. And then I set this online area. And when I'm halfway to the wherever I'm trying to be, walking on foot with no Wi-Fi, I can use that area of the map and at least search Starbucks. And if it's there in my data, it'll show me where it is. It won't draw a map to it, like a route to it, but it will show you where you are and it'll show you where the location of the other thing is so you can kind of follow the streets um, just like an old school map. So that's pretty handy and bloody useful for bands. It also gets me onto the point of proximity. So the Circus Circus was like a shitty hotel, at least where we were in it. We were assigned a room on check-in and we checked in very late and we were just shoved in the shit area. So we were thinking of just upgrading our room for a couple of extra bucks, but we decided, look, we're not going to need to do that until checkout time tomorrow so we don't pay for an extra night for no reason. So I thought I'll check out how the walk is from this hotel to where all of the main events for the few days are going to be. And if you're on tour, that would generally be your venue. Anyway, it was about 40 minutes. And if you're carrying any sort of gear, luggage or anything with you, that's just probably too far, especially with weather conditions, whether it's hot or it's cold or raining or humid. You don't want to do that, especially if you've got something to do. If you're dressed up nice or you've got to go play a show, you don't want to be sweating your ass off or wetting your gear or whatever. So I, I really think it is worthwhile before you're booking accommodation to just check out the proximity of where you're staying to where you're playing um, and yeah, make a compromise between price and location because let me tell you, if it was only going to be 20 US dollars extra a day to book a room closer, it would totally be worth it just on saving one cab or Uber fare a day. And you know, drunk in the middle of the night or just finishing a gig with gear, do you want to be traipsing through some unfamiliar location out to a place that is not full of people. Um, I certainly don't. So yeah, that's why we upgraded. Well, sorry, upgraded, just moved hotel. And you know what? It actually was barely more expensive than the Circus Circus. So yeah, we used some more points, but the resort fee was maybe five, 10 Australian dollars extra per night. And yeah, I'd rather spend 50 bucks to save hours of hassle walking around and possibly having to get cabs and stuff. So that is definitely a tour tip number one. 
Um, what are we going to talk about here? Booking hotels, getting money out. That was another thing. In the past, I've used a travel money card. I've also tried these travelers cards, cards where you put money on in the currency of the country you're going into. Um, and they're pretty good. You can go to an ATM and you can get it out for a free transaction. But it has to be at participating ATMs, right? Um, I used the Citibank one when I was in Europe. And something happened where I tried to book a bus trip or something like that. And they were trying to send me a text, right? And I hadn't activated my roaming. So it was a bit late for me to get the activation code via text to approve this transaction. And then what the what Citibank did is they cut me off because they thought someone had stolen my card and was trying to use it. Now that's all well and good for security, but man, that brutalized me while I was there because I was suddenly without money. And I went into uh, like a, whatever it's called over there, some grocery store, bought some beers and some food and it knocked me back. It said my card was declined and I thought, what the hell? This, it's not a credit card. It's actually got money on it. And yeah, that's why they, I emailed them and they got back to me, you know, after I got back from Europe, of course, saying this thing about security, but yeah, it wasn't so great. So obviously the roaming is, is something that's highly important to have activated for things like that. But um, yeah, I found out that, you know, they're charging you a conversion fee at the same rate as like a MasterCard or a Visa or something. So why not just use your MasterCard or your Visa? If you're not getting money out and you're just making transactions, then that can work pretty good. Um, but watch out though, if you are doing that in a place where they give you a receipt with like an open-ended, like a blank check of gratuity or a tip, where they you know, encourage you to write down a value for a tip. This is pretty big in America, but it's also prevalent in Europe these days. And yeah, I would normally just put down the dollar amount, but I don't know, in my brain, it's tricky to do and do your tip and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I don't want a situation where someone can write in or augment the value that I write in for gratuity. So I might write in a dollar and they put a zero after it or something. And it's pretty hard to chase that stuff up overseas and maybe with your bank. So I don't know, watch out for that. Um, in America, it is pretty cash based. Everyone loves cash and tips and blah, blah, blah. So what I did is I actually got US dollars out. Now in the past, I have tried using one of those money exchange places just while I'm still in Australia. They work fine, whatever. They charge you a bit of a shitty exchange rate. If you time it really well and you are following the Australian dollar, you can do good out of it. But if you're like me and we're pretty last minute with booking the damn trip in the first place, you might be up against a wall with whatever rate they offer you. Um, and those places are usually called like Travelex or something or they're attached to a, a flight uh, airline ticket dealer or whatever. But yeah, they also have these ATMs where you can get money out. And I tried to take 200 US dollars out from one of those ATMs and they were going to charge me 295. And according just to a quick Google search, it should have been more like 250, 260 bucks. So I thought that's a bit crazy. I'm not going to accept these charges. So I just said no and went to America without any dollars. Now, because I had Uber, 
in America, that worked out where it was linked to my PayPal and that sorted out needing money. As soon as I got there, I didn't need to actually get anything out to, just to get to my hotel. And at the hotel, we paid our resort fee with cards. So that worked out fine. Um, but yeah, then I met up with the fellas the next day and said, look, I need money. Uh, one Ryan Smitty Smith was there as well at the Bucks Day. He was in the same boat, needed to get some cash out. And Jim told me, so another tip is that don't get your money out at a casino or at least check out what they're charging you first. I know in Australia, we've got a few ATMs, you know, at a pub that might charge you a $4.50 Australian fee to get cash out. Well, in America, there was one that was $10 US just to get cash out, which is crazy because on top of that, you've got the conversion fee and it, yeah, ends up being nuts. So his tip was to get off the Vegas Strip out of the rural tourist zone and part of the Bucks Day was heading, yeah, off the Strip to Old Vegas. Those of you who are unfamiliar with Vegas may not know, but yeah, there was Old Vegas where the, you know, Fremont Street, it's known as the main street there. And that's what you'll see in all the old school Vegas movies most of the time, that sort of stuff. Uh, the new Vegas Strip was actually built... Um, to bypass some kind of city law thing. So it's actually outside the main Vegas city limits or something like that. Um, and they just built a whole new town with all these resorts. So yeah, that's a bit of a weird one. But anyway, old Vegas is a lot cheaper. It's actually cheaper to gamble there. Drinks are cheaper there. Restaurants are cheaper there. And ATMs are cheaper there. So they charge more like four bucks if you get the right ATM there, which, you know, converting to Australian is... A decent enough difference. It's at least a couple of drinks, so that's um, that's a pretty cool tip. So yeah, ended up getting two hundred dollars US out of that ATM, and it cost me two hundred and sixty-five Australian dollars as opposed to that two ninety-five that I was telling you before. So that's thirty Australian bucks. That's pretty significant. Um, and pretty much paid for the taxi there and back, um, and a couple of drinks, you know, because we split the taxis just to do that. So it was quite worthwhile. Um, yeah, so there, are, I don't know, there are a few tips I think that can help bands a lot and just generally traveling tips for you. In terms of the Bucks Day itself, that was awesome. Cabba organized that, being a good little manager that he is. He added everyone to a Facebook group, booked a hotel right in the middle of the Vegas Strip that wasn't very expensive, but he booked the room for the Bucks night and the days leading up to the wedding. And that was really smart because that way he could just ask everyone to chip in a certain amount of money and he will buy some beers, nibblies and some food. So he had a budget to do that because we all put in and we could use that as our home base. So we all met there. I think I was the last because of my big walk. So I was, got there about 9.30, but the guys were there from about 8, 8.30, I think. And yeah, had some shots, drank some beers, had some snacks, cranked some music. That was another big one. We had a Bluetooth speaker and a laptop and everyone could just plug their phones in. And it was comfy, had a couch. It was, it was cool, man. And just catching up with your mates in another city without having to do a gig is really awesome. Pretty cool crew too. So primarily it was myself, uh, Dicey, who has some crazy stories from... Mexico, he was in that earthquake that happened. He just happened to be there before the wedding. And yeah, it was, I don't know, some nutty stuff there. 
maybe we should talk to Dyson about it. But yeah, glad that he's still alive and kicking because it sounds like it was pretty hectic. Like the streets were, he was surfing on the bitumen as it was like rippling and buildings were shaking. Meters like and things crumbling and 20,000 people on the street crying, women and children, blah, 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 ru- people trapped in rubble, nutty stuff. So anyway, uh, yeah, me, Cabba, Jim, Dyson, also Paulie Cottrell, who's from uh, Nine Foot Super, Super Soldier and, of course, his side project, Cursed Earth, who are doing some touring and we will finally get him on the show one of these days. And Ryan Smitty-Smith, as I talked about earlier, previous podcast guest, he was there. Um, and then a few American dudes rocked up that Jim's friends with. So a guy called Lane who awesomely rocked up with um, a backpack just with a carton of beer, which was awesome. So he met us halfway through the day and we were just grabbing beers out of his backpack, which was actually shaped the exact size of a carton of uh, PBR cans. And it was like a sort of a cooler bag setup. Um, so that was incredible. And also met us much later on were a couple of guys that Jim knows from bands. One guy was called Max. He was pretty cool. And the other guy was called Big Mike. And he, I think he puts on Las Vegas Death Fest. And he was a pretty cool dude too. If there was anyone else uh, in the main crew, can't remember. Uh, except for the most important guy who was Jim's dad, Steve Parker. And yeah, he put Jim on this planet. So yeah, it was awesome to have him cruising with us throughout the day. And yeah, we met there, uh, went straight to Fremont Street, Heart Attack Grill, got these giant burgers. Uh, you got to finish your plate or else these women in nurse uniforms paddle your ass. Everyone finished their food, but Dicey still opted to have his ass whacked anyway, of course. And yeah, he's bruised and battered from that. Cruised down the street and did some gambling, saw some freaks on the street, some weird ass buskers and stuff. Um, yeah, and we just sort of dominated one roulette table at the Golden Gate Casino for an hour or so. And when you're gambling, people come around and ask you for free drinks. So, you you know, we were just drinking beers or whiskeys or whatever, just doing little $5 bets at a time, skipping the occasional round so as not to blow heaps of money. But everyone was having a pretty good win. So I know I paid for all of my bucks day and then some just from being lucky um you know gambling's chance right um but yeah my only tip with that is just don't it, it can go as quick as it comes so if you're just pumping every single spin of a roulette wheel and you're putting more than the minimum down you could get on a bad streak and just lose heaps of cash but yeah we were just doing it for like okay for every ten dollars i bet if i can get a free drink i'd be happy enough and yeah it ended up working out in most of our favors so that was good The other tip there with uh, gambling and drinking is that they have these computerized like multi-game casino machines at each bar. So you sit in and each bar is different. You'll put in, if you put in 20 bucks and you say you're going to do a minimum bet of a dollar every hand of let's say blackjack, the guy at the bar will just give you a drink and you're going to give him like a dollar tip or something and that's all it's going to cost you. So the trick there is put in your 20 bucks set it to $1 bets, play one hand and just get the guy's attention at that point because a little light comes up that we can't see, but that's how they know that you're doing 
that little trick. And yeah, order your drink, you know, play your $1 and then just cash straight out. And in some cases you win a dollar, which is great off that one hand. Um, and in the case of me who stuffed it up and pressed the wrong button, accidentally put down more money than I should have and won 10 bucks. So that was a total fluke. And yeah, got a lot of drinks that day for free. So that's a, a good way of getting the most out of Vegas. But just do be aware because the more expensive casinos on the strip expect you to be playing like a $2 minimum bet or something. If you're unsure, it's a bit weird and a bit embarrassing, but you can ask the person behind the bar, hey, what does a guy have to do to get a drink around here? Okay, if I'm gambling, I'll do this. Because yeah, I, did, I didn't realize what my machine was set to 25 cent bets at one place. And I asked for a drink and the guy charged me seven bucks. And I was like, are you kidding me? And then I saw I was on 25 cent bets and thought, oh, that makes sense. So I'd paid him by that point. Jim's mum walks over and he goes, oh, yeah, are you doing your free drink tip? And I said, no, he charged me seven bucks. And she wouldn't stand for it. Called the guy over. Hey, you, please come here. No, you. This gentleman needs a drink. He's gambling here at your casino, blah, blah. And basically told him off into giving me a second drink for free. So <laughs> that was pretty awesome of her. It was pretty cool. Anyway, after that, we pretty much went back to the hotel room, got utterly plastered, listening to all sorts of death metal and thrash and power metal and all this sort of shit, talking a lot of crap. And I think I lasted until about 9, 10 o'clock, just... Man, 15-hour layover, 13-hour flight, and then a couple of connecting flights in between. Utterly brutalized, super drunk. Went to my new hotel, which was five minutes from where I, uh, the Bucks Day was being held. Crashed out. I slept for about three hours and woke up for the rest of the night. I couldn't sleep, and that was the jet lag thing happening. And then it hit about nine o'clock in the morning, and I completely sort of fell asleep again and I figured it out that you know that's evening-ish time in Perth so yeah my body clock was definitely still on Perth time but I just pushed through it I had a few hours sleep in the morning and then just pushed through each day and same thing kept happening I wouldn't sleep through the night and the reason I didn't care too much about it didn't complain is because I knew I was in a whirlwind trip I was only spending four nights in Vegas because we did leave on the Thursday straight after the wedding or sorry the next day after the wedding about two or three in the afternoon and yeah I thought screw it I'd rather go back to Australia still being on per time than readjusting my body clock um, and that's very similar to tour you go there you load up your party as they say do your touring, get bugger all sleep. And then usually when I get back to Perth, I just stay up all day until that evening and I can generally sleep through the night. Whereas when I've done longer trips on holiday, you get in that mode of sleeping on their time and that's brutal to get through. So I think I've beaten jet lag. I got in yesterday at two in the afternoon, stayed up, I think I fell asleep about 9.30 at night and slept through till seven. So that's about right. And I've got work tomorrow. So I think I should be fine. Um, so yeah, don't be scared of that stuff on tour, by the way, jet lag and all that crap. Just let it happen and deal with it when you get back. And if you can book an extra day or so off work once you get back, do it. But if, yeah, most of us can't do that using a lot of our holidays as it is, uh, just go back to work and if you're struggling midweek, pull a sickie. That's what they're there for. 
you got to live your life. So yeah, just treat it that way. Uh, in terms of the wedding itself, wedding was really cool. Did it in a little chapel. Jim walked into Winter Sun, of course. Um, very small ceremony, pretty quick. Everyone looked lovely. You can see some photos online, I'm sure. And yeah, then we went down the casino, had a few drinks, did some more gambling. I lost money. So I think I pretty much balanced out for the four-day Vegas trip. And yeah, headed up to what are they called? Not an after-party reception. Uh, Dicey was MC. Cabba did a best man speech. The parents of the groom did a speech. Well, the dads mainly. And yeah, we just had an awesome little buffet and unlimited drinks for like three hours. So everyone got trashed. And then we all pretty much went our separate ways. It had been a hectic few days. And um, yeah, most people were flying either back to Australia within the next day or so or to other parts of America to continue their holidays. So yeah, pretty much that was all that it was and it was bloody great. So yeah, congrats to Jim from all of us here at the Claim of Throne Blodgecast and of course in Claim of Throne. Um, it was awesome, totally worth doing. Yeah, it costs a bit of money to fly there and back but super glad I did it because yeah, I had a wicked old time. Uh, some other things I did on the plane, classic me, listening to heaps of fucking shit, um, spending the most time I could listening to music and podcasts and blah, blah, blah. Pretty hard to do when you're sleeping, but I have, I listen to summoning when I'm sleeping on a plane. Um, would you believe it? And yeah, man, God, I love summoning so much crap on about it all the time, of course. But yeah, it's one of those bands that I've been sort of listening to on and off, trying to understand it since like 2012, 2013. And in the last year or two, it's really clicked. So yeah, Summoning Stronghold, which is playing in the background now for you, Paulie Cottrell, destroying your ears while you're trying to listen to me talk shit. Um, yeah, love this album. It's really cool, very different to heaps of metal um, synth based I've talked about it before what I did notice about it when I wasn't sleeping uh, because yeah by the way I listened to two summoning albums and two different Managam albums like on repeat for a 17 hour plane flight on the way home from America 17 hours from LA to Sydney crazy uh, but yeah Stronghold man what an album I think the first album oh, sorry the first song starts with the same chord progression as the last song is which is an awesome chord progression, by the way. I really love it. Might work it out and, yeah, unlock the secrets of that song. But, yeah, it just goes through, I think, like, yeah, look, it's got this kind of lo-fi sound. doesn't sound like there's barely any bass in it. All the bass is coming from synth, the kick drum, and the occasional chugging guitar part. But... And, and yeah, all the songs are pretty much just repetitive chord progressions and they're very super like groovy. But yeah, I think the balance is just great. It has just this awesome vibe, tons of reverb and it's just a little lesson in, you know, you don't have to have everything sound like fucking, I don't know, Metallica Black Album to be a really cool sounding metal album. You know, no one's going to give this a Grammy for production, but... I just love that a band is willing to just make their own unique sound. And yeah, heaps of bands, heaps of bands have copied Summoning. 
Um, other bands I like that have definitely taken a big influence from summoning um, primarily would be Caladan Brood, who I've talked about recently on the show, and their one album, which I can't remember the name of, but look them up. It's, a, I think, a 2013 album is, yeah, like kind of if Summoning was more of a conventional sounding metal band. Um, so if you do want to, if you've listened to Summoning, you think it's shit, listen to Caladan Brood and then, you know, if you start to dig that, then go to like Summoning Stronghold and you might get where I'm coming from. Um, yeah, and Manigam, of course, they're fucking awesome, their early albums. And I did thrash their first album, which I've never given heaps of a listen before. God, I can't pronounce it. Nord Still Yar Nans Tid Salda or something. The remastered version of it is on Apple Music. I'm not sure what year it came out. I think 2000, late 90s. I don't actually know. But yeah, that's pretty cool too. The guys are definitely like sloppier players. But once again, the vibe is killer. I actually think the drum sound is better than my favorite Managarm album, which is Habits Varga. Um, what I most like about it is that the kick is never overly present. It's like a rock engineer engineered that album. And then when blast beats and fast double kick come in, as naturally happens when you're drumming, the attack goes down a bit, the presence, um, it doesn't cut through as much. Um, but yeah, on the slow bits, there's a nice, big, open, cool snare sound. And yeah, I really appreciate that about music. I don't care that it's not like triggered kicks and in your face, like let's say a Nile album, which is or most death metal albums these days. But you know, they're really cool and they sound awesome and pummeling and in the case of like, let's say, Annihilation of the Wicked by Nile, it's, I would be shocked to find out that those drums were edited beyond just the standard punching in and stuff. Because, yeah, I can definitely hear some pushing and pulling in terms of the feel of all that stuff. Um, and I do appreciate that. But, yeah, I love it when a band just takes this like natural approach and that, in a way, gives them their own sound. Um, and yeah, there are things you can do with in mixing automation and stuff that I've never been that good at to make those things cut through a bit more and still sound very natural. But yeah, I love it when people just don't give a fuck and just do it. I think it's really awesome. So those were two good listening bands for the plane. Um, another tip with that actually is that, man, planes are so noisy and I know these headphones over the ears are pretty common these days, noise cancelling and stuff. But just out of happenstance, uh, on the tour we did last year with Darker Half, um, I brought my in-ears to use on stage and I also brought my other headphones and I either lost them or broke them. They're just normal iPod headphones. It's like, shit, what am I going to use on the plane? Oh, I'll use my in-ears, great. Chucked them in, totally killed the aeroplane noise not entirely, but man, did such a good job. It was like I was wearing earplugs. And it meant I could listen to music at a low level because usually I have to crank it on a plane to get over the engine noise and I usually develop a massive headache. So yeah, man, so good. And you can listen to a podcast without having them yell in your ear because all the outside noise is cut. Uh, one thing to be careful of though, if you do have a plane where you can connect your own headphones to the input, of just like the um, entertainment system in the plane where you watch movies and stuff. 
don't crank the movie if you've got like kick-ass headphones or any headphones for that matter because when they do those cabin announcements, no kidding, it's like five times the volume of this movie you're watching. So you're really engrossed in this movie and you might be falling asleep and the, the guy says like, attention people or whatever, it just blasts your ears and you can't, you know, it's, it's so hard to rip them out of your ears or to, um, you know, I just pull it out of the socket, like straight out when that happens. Um, and it's, I think it's easier to just get some really well isolated headphones and listen at quite a low volume um, helps you sleep and yeah when those cabin announcements come in it's still brutal but it's not too bad and with the in-ears I think I had it like two clicks above mute you know so yeah and it still was fine it wasn't I wasn't struggling to hear um, but yeah I'd always have my hand somewhat near that the input jack so I could just yank it out but man I'm telling you it's to the point where it, I would almost complain and I can see one day there being a lawsuit about that because man it is so loud in your ears rips them apart um something else i listened to on the plane was the daily adventures of mixer man it's a book written by a mixer called mixer man um i've actually got an audiobook version of it since like 2012 2013 listened to it back then thought it was a pretty cool listen it's kind of like a fictional or i believe it's fictional um, recounting of a recording session that this guy was the engineer on and it's interesting because I think he originally did it in the maybe the mid-2000s but just as a, a daily post on Pro Sound Network like a forum about recording and sound and shit like that and then he compiled all of those posts into a book and you know I think it's pretty well written it tells a pretty interesting story and it's a even though it's fictional and it's made up names and all that stuff, it's such a deep insight into what the major label industry, the machine of the major labels, especially I, I'm gathering what was, it was like in the 90s and early 2000s. And yeah, listening to it now after being like an independent artist for years, I'm so glad I never got caught up in that. Um, and it re yeah, really explains a lot about a lot of albums that I used to like and stories that you'd hear about artists and studio stories and advances and all this kind of stuff. So uh, definitely a very interesting listen. And the audiobook's cool because they get people to do the voices of all the main characters and there's a bit of music. So it's not just like a dry audiobook. So do check that out. Um, the Daily Adventures of Mixer Man by either Mixer Man or Eric Serafin. Anyway, it's a very cool book, so I encourage you to check it out. Um, something else that popped up, I am doing some drum tracking, as I mentioned last episode. That'll be, actually, that'll have just happened by the time this episode comes out. And I did talk about a bunch of podcasts I listened to. One of them was The Unstoppable Recording Machine, and it just so happens that they released an episode, coincidentally, that totally illustrates why I listened to it. And it was an episode called Tone Tips and it was about getting good drum sounds with a guy called Matt Brown. And yeah, this guy is sort of like the drum doctor, I guess, but more of the heavy metal world where he rocks up with some kits to a recording session. He's hired by the engineer. He sets up tunes reskins does all that stuff and 
Yeah, I think in his spare time he's also a drummer, like a session drummer. Anyway, they go into some real nerdy stuff, mostly about tuning, a little bit about types of skins, muffling and stuff like that. And honestly, that is exactly what I'll be doing this week. And I'm so glad that I saw that episode and had to listen to it because it actually confirmed a bunch of stuff that I hold to be true about getting drum sounds. Um, and yeah, it's I'm not going to fret too much about the way I was going to approach it. So it's good for that. And I also did learn some other little stuff along the way, especially about muffling and moon gel. So yeah, that's cool. I encourage you to check it out. But yeah, that's why I listen to all that stuff because I just get hints here and there and also concepts. And I definitely think that in general, understanding recording concepts, especially with tracking and, and, you know, then it goes through to mixing. But yeah, definitely in the tracking phase, understanding why you're doing everything is way more important than gear or tricks and tips. And I've definitely spent more time in my life obsessing about gear and tricks and how to overcome certain problems or achieve certain things than the actual concepts behind recording and mixing itself. So yeah, all of those things are listed. That's what I'm listening for. And yeah, that tone tips one about drums is just exactly right. Like I want a particular drum sound this weekend and yeah, knowing how to achieve that before a microphone is even on it is far more important than doing some trick to fix that or mitigate an issue or perhaps, you know, resort to sampling at the end of the day. Um, because no matter what you do, um, the, the basis of your recording is always defined by the gear you the sorry the actual instrument you use the way it's played and the composition of the song and that's more paramount than any sort of thing and there's some really popular albums out there that would be considered lo-fi not in the summoning sense but in the you know very the raw sense where people have recorded albums with minimal mics you know what would be deemed inappropriate mics for let's say a drum kit like 57s as overheads and stuff where the guys just understand how to place everything they have an overall idea of what they're trying to get out of the recording and then in the mixing okay they're not doing all this parallel compression and gated reverbs and bullshit they're just getting like an extremely um, well represented balance of each individual instrument and uh, of the whole song in general and that trumps everything totally like the best mixes I reckon I've ever done have been the ones that where I've just absolutely nailed the balance and where the tracking has been pretty good so yeah it's pretty huge for me and yeah I guess like in the future because I've got a bunch of little recordings coming up as I've talked about I've got a decent enough drum rig but I think in the past I've spent more money kind of in the wrong places like on preamps before I've actually got decent mics and this was brought up on the live blogcast uh, when Septillion those boys were talking about how they've recorded I think they recorded real basically with one or two mics or something and then programmed the drums along to that performance which I think is an incredibly good idea when you've got a resort to programming um, but one thing 
thing that might help out in that situation is like if you because they were talking about wanting to get a real drum performance and getting mics what i would say is that if you have any money to spend at all i would spend it on like good overheads and that doesn't have to be expensive but you know something like at the lower end maybe like a um and i don't want to bum steer anyone here but like the road what are those things called nt5 or maybe nt55 is the the stereo mic and the nt5 is the actual mono mic and you get them in a pair you can pick them up for super cheap and they're not the greatest things on earth but you know they'll give you a more clear representation rather than spending equal money on you know a cool kick drum mic and a snare drum mic but then your overheads are really lacking and you're using really cheap shitty condensers so yeah i'd say get a decent pair of condensers and this might be something like okay at that lower end the nt5s by road which i used on forged in flame and they were okay but you know i would want something slightly better from <laughs> from there on out but yeah something like um i don't know maybe look at a shore sm81 is it 81 shit yeah i think they're the 81s those old condensers that look kind of funny um also the road uh, nt one which i have and i used on vocals in the um on desolate plane session and we're actually going to try them out this week or yesterday and the day before by the time you hear this um on the drum session because al's got one i've got one so we're going to try and use it as a stereo pair for overheads but i mean if they work good that's a 270 dollar mic so times two 540 that's a pretty good entry point in there um al himself in the past has used sennheiser shotgun mics with uh an omni capsule that's what was on on desolate planes and i think he kind of got bits and pieces of them online and secondhand and stuff so they can be quite affordable and something like i don't know i don't know that's a that's enough little options to look at that, that they're pretty cheap but read a lot of reviews and find out what people are using and just try and go again for the concept so do you want a small diaphragm or a large diaphragm do you want an omni or a cardioid what's your room like um, does your room have a certain resonant frequency that you can find out is like a road NT5 going to just like enhance that and make it shit or something like that. And if you're not going to buy it, mics, and I wouldn't always suggest to definitely go out and buy things like why not hire them? Like if you can't afford to buy a decent set of overheads, just hire them from somewhere. Um, music stores will often do higher stuff, but even places you might not think of like, audio visual suppliers for like parties and stuff sometimes have pairs of condensers and yeah there are places you can find so just get on google do some research you might find that you can hire like for 50 bucks a day you can hire a microphone and yeah do two days of tracking in your house or in a rehearsal room or something costs you 200 bucks and if you really love it then you can go out and buy that mic or a similar mic um, but yeah, you're not too much in the hole and we all know that studios cost money anyway. So there's some investment, um, going into it in the first place. As for things like, you know, reading on the net, you want drum mics, uh, for toms on stands, uh, because you don't want them clamped to the drum and blah, blah, blah. 
look, that's great. But if you're not going to be in a pro, like if you're not going to try and go professional with your recording and you're just doing it to record your own band, I would say just buy some Sennheiser E604s that just clip onto the onto the drums. So then you don't have to carry around stands. And stands themselves are expensive, man. They're like, for a shit one, you'll get it for 50 bucks, but then you won't be able to position it properly and they break, the threads on them break easily. So yeah, ha- just having something that you can just carry around and clip on is really good. And that even does go for snare, especially in the case of like Septillion where they were just programming along to a drum take and the drum sound was pretty cool on their record. If you're just going to do a clip on and then maybe trigger a snare, if you're not going to be in a perfect room, you might have to do that anyway. So why not just have a clip on mic on all of the shells and the kick drum. I've done it in the past where I just stick a 57 inside the kick. Yeah. You can EQ that like cutting a shitload of the boxiness out of it. Cause that always seems to happen and boosting some high end and some low end get a pretty decent sound, but then you can also use that to trigger. Um, or if you have triggers that you attach, you can trigger off those things as well. So just be smart about it and don't care about buying the best preamps in the world. If your end goal is just to do some triggering anyway, um, in that kind of a situation, realistically, the only thing you're not going to trigger is symbols or are symbols. So get a decent set of overheads and just capture those as best you possibly can and do as much reading and trial and error of setting up those overheads. And if it's not right, just, you know, chalk down that particular tracking day as just a experiment and do some more practice with it and record a month later. If you're doing these kind of ghetto recordings, it's because you're not signed to someone and no one's begging you for an album. It's all off your own back. So the only person you have to adhere to time-wise is yourself. So screw it. Who cares? Um, You're not in the hole. Any extra money, maybe the cost of a room for one day, but spend a day. Do heaps of different variations of overheads and see what one sounds the best and either book consecutive days after that or like note down what each thing did for you and then set an actual tracking date and do it there Um, especially if you're not so experienced I know on Forged in Flame I definitely wasn't and I was sort of painted into a corner with a drum recording because we were out of money so yeah I hired two NT5s and I did the setup the night before I recorded and it was the first time I'd ever put up a set of overheads and look it was what it was and it did fine but it left a lot to be desired. I wish that in hindsight, I just just didn't care so much and used that as a practice and yeah, came back and did it later. Going to sip some tea. So there are a few tips for you. Um, in terms of preamps and stuff, if you've got an interface that just has two preamps on it, but it allows you to expand out an extra, you know, few channels on ADAT. That's what mine does. Um, yeah, I've mentioned it before, but those Behringer Ultra Gain Pro 8 ADA 8000s, pick them up bloody cheap online, brand new or in, God, my computer shit itself. You pick them up online or in Gumtree or eBay or something for really cheap. And honestly, if it's just recording 
a mic on a tom that you're going to trigger or a kick mic that you're going to trigger. It doesn't have to be the best preamp in the world. I would save your two good preamps, if you've got an interface with good preamps, that is. Um, save those stereo pair for the overheads and just be done with it. One thing you got to look out for is you want to try and clock to your main interface. So if your interface has an ADAT expansion and it has a word clock BNC uh, input, so it allows you to clock your external preamps to the interface, then definitely use that. Um, and of course, your interface is the master, your external one is the slave. May not mean much, but if you get some kind of weird jittering effects or something like that, you'll know about it and it's going to be a nightmare for you. But yeah, at the end of the day, what you can do, this is a terrible, terrible idea in my opinion, but if you put up against uh, a wall, you can just set up overheads just by themselves and you can do what Septillion did and just program drums underneath that just based on the performance. That would take forever and would not technically be right, probably be all out of phase and weird and stuff. But look, you know, whatever. <laughs> or I don't know, maybe just record symbols only over a programmed performance. Not really sure. But yeah, there's heaps of little tricks and stuff you can do. But I'd say I find the easiest way is to... Yeah, just get cheap shitty mics and everything just to use as a reference for a trigger. And if you can mic them up as best as you possibly can with the stuff you've got, then that it makes everything sound better at the end of the day. So yeah, that's more boring drum recording tips for you. Um, apart from that, that's pretty much it. All I want to talk about today, or all I had sort of prepped to talk about. So that is going to do us for the week. Um, we, I'll be doing that drum session with Al. So hopefully we'll have some content for you from that. And also hopefully we'll see Cabba return on the next episode. That would be awesome. He flies back from the States, I think on the Saturday that I'm doing that drum tracking. So he might make an appearance on the Sunday, but he's probably going to be completely and utterly exhausted. So it might have to wait a few days after that, but that's cool. So hopefully next week you'll hear him one way or another. Uh, thanks for tuning in once again. If you do want to ask any questions or follow me up, tell me off, whatever, you can go to claimathrone.com and look at the contacts page. But yeah, it is info at claimathrone.com for email. Leave a comment on this post on Facebook or on the Instagram, whatever, on Twitter. Who really cares? But yeah, if there's anything you want me to talk about, especially when I'm flying solo, um, just let me know and I shall talk about it. Anyway, that's all from me. I will talk to you guys again soon. See you later. Yeah.